Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Neuroscience. This is a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I am Dr. John Griffiths from the University of Toronto and Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And I'm co-host to this channel with Joseph Friedman and Sophie Barwich, Victoria Reedman and Chris Harris. And today I'm speaking with Professor Robert or Bob Stickold. So Dr. Stickold is a full professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And for several decades now, he's been a leader in the field of sleep research, specifically the cognitive neuroscience of sleep and dreaming. And he's made major contributions to our understanding, in particular, the role of sleep in memory consolidation. So Dr. Dr. Stickold has uh, hundreds of scientific publications in this and other areas. And today we're going to be talking about his new book, which is called When Brains Dream. Exploring the Science and Mysteries of Sleep, which he written together with Dr. Antonio Tony Zadra from the University of Montreal. When Brains Dream is a, a fascinating summary of the history and current state of the art of the science of dreams. It's a really engaging book. It really gives the reader a sense for how psychological and neuroscientific dream research is done by scientists in the lab. And it's also crystal clear about the fairly muddy topic of what we can and what we can't say about what we know about the causes and the mechanisms and functions of sleep and dreaming. So, Bob, welcome to New Books in Neuroscience. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yep, you're very welcome. So what's customary for these discussions is I, I'd like to begin with some background on the authors. So if you could tell us a little bit about your your professional biography, basically how you got into this research field and what was the trajectory that led you to writing with Tony, to you and Tony writing When Brains Dream? Well, I have a very circuitous path getting here. I actually have a PhD in biochemistry, did my doctoral thesis research on DNA replication in bacteria. And it's been a long and torturous route from biochemistry to neurochemistry to neurophysiology, and then finally 
into sleep research. Um, my interest in sleep actually originated around dreams, but then sort of turned and focused mostly for the last 25 years on, on the role of sleep in memory processing. And Tony and I got together because Tony wanted to write an article for some yet-to-be-determined scientific uh, journal on the myths of dreaming, because there's all these myths that surround dreaming that even scientists, even sleep researchers tend to believe, such as the idea that dreaming only occurs in REM sleep. And, and so he wanted to write this article to debunk um, these myths. And as we talked about it more and more, we realized we had way too much to say for an article, and it just expanded into a book. That's fascinating. So, and have you guys been working together for a long time? So Tony and I never worked together before this. Tony came to me um, with this idea, and we met at the annual sleep meetings, which were in Boston, I guess two and a half years ago now. And, and that's the first time we seriously started thinking about working together. And it was it was quite enjoyable because when we started, we had no idea about each other's writing styles even. And we're delighted to find that we couldn't even tell which of us wrote which chapters. Our styles are so similar. But but our work together has really been limited to just working on this book so far. That's, that's really interesting that that's a relatively new collaboration because the yeah the, one of one of the um, the nice touches in the writing style basically the book is back and forth between a little bit about basically you kind of refer to yourselves in the first person so you, you say like Bob you know has worked on knows about understands has been talking with his daughter about this, Tony, da, da, da. it kind of sounds like your long-term friends, the way it comes across in the book. Well, now we um, are. Right, yeah. And so and in terms of like professional expertise, would you say? Because I, I think if, if I'm reading things correctly from your respective uh, bodies of work, um, Tony's coming at the, the question of well, the study of sleep and dreaming from a little bit more of a, um, a experimental psychology line and you are maybe more a, a kind of clinical psychiatry slash neurophysiology scientist. Is that, or is that a reasonable summary? No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I describe myself as a cognitive neuroscientist, but I spent four years working with Steve Kufler at Harvard medical school, poking, you know, ganglion cells in, in, Fruit in sorry in in bullfrogs and in mud puppies and, and doing intracellular recording. So I, I have my abonavides in, in in neurophysiology and and so I come at it really from from this really hard science perspective. Right, right. And and did you do you trained with Alan Hobson? Did you uh, is that correct or is that you, you worked with him so a fair bit as I well? Did a, yeah. Yeah. I, after I finished postdocing, I um, was an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center for three years and then actually left that job in sort of dissatisfaction with what I was doing and then started working with Alan Hobson back at Harvard Medical School. And, and we worked together for, I guess, a half dozen years working on, on cognitive neuroscience of, of sleep. 
cognitive neuroscience, but I guess also the your your biochemist background comes into play somewhat in the in the the more of the neurochemist neurochemistry of of sleep and particularly of dreaming as well. Well, my biochemistry background certainly helped me when I started thinking about neuromodulation in the brain. Um, but its its impact is even deeper because I think it has instilled in me a, a higher standard scientifically uh, in terms of, of what kind of, of evidence, what kind of data um, is convincing. I, I feel like I, I, I come at it more like a, a neuroscientist than like a, an experimental psychologist. And it it really, I think, increases the rigor of the work I've been able to do over the last 25 years. Yeah, that's good. I think um, I think it's reasonable to say we can aspire to the standards of chemistry in cognitive neuroscience. I would sign up to that. Okay, so uh, let's let's go ahead and dive into the book. So um, there's a variety of fascinating things that you cover in the book. There's you know the neurobiology of sleep and dreaming. There's a lot on memory coming from from your own expertise. The, you, you touch on consciousness. There's medical applications, all that good stuff. I'd like to get into the um, kind of current status of knowledge in various areas in a little bit, but as you, as is to be expected, really in this, this type of book, you open up with the history um, in the first few chapters. So, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could you could take us through that. One of the things that you you touch on and that I, I noted in in your uh, opening one to two chapters is. Um, is the the discussion of Freud? You know, so you could, Freud is like the elephant in the room in any uh, any summary of understanding of sleep, and there's an elephant in in more than one way, I guess. Um, and and it's in, what I found interesting was that you know it's common in in things like psychology one hundred and one courses to do sometimes a fairly brutal takedown of Freudian ideas, um, but also maybe with a begrudging acknowledgement that um, you know there's important contributions to things like understanding of unconscious thought processes and so on. And you actually do something like that, but actually specifically in the area of sleep, as in um, you you uh, play down basically the uh, originality of some of uh, Freud's contributions that I think are generally considered to be, you know, new ideas injected by him in 1905 or whatever. Um, so maybe, yeah, you could take us through a little bit of that that early history and then we can go from there th- through into the the twentieth century history of um, of sleep research, and then we'll bring it up to the present day. Great. So it's absolutely true that from nineteen hundred to the mid nineteen seventies, at least, all dream theory revolved around Freud. Um, he was a superb marketer in the end of his of his dream theories, and cheerfully claimed credit not only for his own work, but actually for work that many others had done over the previous 50 years. So, so the real start of, of scientific dream research goes back to around the 1860s. And as an example, um, there was a book by uh, a guy named St. Denis, uh, The Dreams and the Way to Guide Them, that is a beautiful um, experimental and theoretical discussion of dreaming. So from the experimental point of view, he wanted to know how um, how associations contributed 
to to dreaming and, and how sensory stimulation during sleep might contribute. And he set up this project. He did a lot of traveling around France. And when he went to a new city, he would always buy um, a new perfume and spray it onto his hands and, and smell it frequently the whole time that he was in that town. And he would do that across France over an extended period until he had 10 or 20 different perfumes from 10 or 20 different cities. And then he would have his servant, and I love that he had servants, um, on some nights when he was sleeping, spray one of these perfumes at him while he was sleeping. And then a few minutes later, wake him up and collect the dream report. And he was able to determine that when this happened, he would have dreams that did not incorporate the perfume, that he was not aware of the perfume having been sprayed, but would actually have a dream that took place in that town or city where he had been exposed to that perfume previously. Um, he did it with music. He would go to um, big big parties and he would ask the the orchestra, the band, to play a particular song while he danced with one woman and then a different song while he danced with another woman and then have his servant play record recordings of, of one or the other of those songs while he was sleeping and see incorporation of the appropriate woman into his dreams. So he was able to show both that the sensory stimulation during sleep can get into your brain and into your mind, if you will, and that your brain in constructing dreams could follow associative links to the person or place associated with the music or, or the smell. And he actually came up with these two concepts, um, one of which he called abstraction, where he argued that a sensory input during the day, like an orange, um, could in a dream reappear as a beach ball having the same shape, or an orange sunset having the same color, or even uh, a lemon grove having the same general smells. And so he called this abstraction, and he came up with a similar concept where sometimes he would spray two perfumes at night, or his servant would, and he would have a dream that seemed to meld together those two locations. And so he came up with this concept um, of what did he call it? The, the combination of images. And these exactly predicted Freud's concepts of displacement and condensation. And Freud acknowledges that he read St. Denise's book, but doesn't point out that Denise had come up with these very same common concepts. So there was some nice experimental psychology and theoretical work um, 40 45 years before Freud's book came out. Mary Calkin, who was a professor at Wellesley College here in Massachusetts um, in 1893, put out a paper in the American Journal of Psychology entitled Statistics of Dreams, where she analyzed 400 dream reports, about 20 times more than you'll find in Freud's interpretation of dreams, and showed things, for example, like that dreams are longer and more vivid later in the night, which we now know is when we have most of our REM sleep, and those dreams are, in fact, longer and more vivid. So all of this research was done and had been read by Freud before he wrote his interpretation of dreams. 
which was published in 1899, but given a publication date of 1900. So it could be seen as into the next century. And Freud's work was a brilliant piece of literature. It was very well written. In fact, one of Freud's big complaints later in his life is that while he won literary awards, he never won a scientific award. And the reason is because the book isn't scientific. It's a literary um, wandering through the question of dreaming. But it was so powerful in the way it was written that it really dominated um, all discussion about dreaming until the mid-1970s. And that's when uh, Alan Hobson and Bob McCarley, then at both at Harvard Medical School, published a pair of articles in the American Journal of Psychiatry where they introduced his activation, their activation synthesis model. And it was a direct anti-Freudian rejection of, of Freud's arguments. And they said that dream construction is a process of brain activation followed by synthesis. And the activation is, they said, the dreaming is triggered by the largely random firing of giant neurons in the pontine reticular formation. And that this activity in, in the pons sent up waves of activity to the lateral geniculate nucleus that were propagated onto the visual cortex, producing a self-generated and auto-generated visual sensation in the brain. And at that point, the synthesis part of activation synthesis took over. And in synthesis, the forebrain, they said, was making the best of a bad job. And I'm quoting him here. Best of a bad job in producing partially coherent dream imagery from the relatively noisy signal sent up to it from the brainstem. And it led people to interpret their model as saying that dreams are random. And if you read the article carefully, that's not actually what they say. I mean, they specifically say in the article, that dreams have psychological content, that they're made from our own memories and that they have meaning associated with what content is used in that synthesis process. But the notion that the origin of the dreams was in random activity in the brainstem as opposed to suppressed or repressed wishes in the unconscious just freaked out the entire psychoanalytic community. And Hobson loved that. He loved the reaction he got. And really, for the next 50 years, he dropped any discussion of the synthesis half of the model and really focused on, on the activation portion and how it argued against Freud's models of dreams being initiated by these um, repressed desires. And so then that sort of got a lot of press. And yes, psychology textbooks started saying that the current models say that dreams are random and meaningless. And Hobson and McCarley were happy with that. They were satisfied with that, even though Hobson clearly didn't believe that they were either random or meaningless. But that then sort of became the dominant view and has been probably for the next 25 years. And since then, sort of cognitive neuroscientists, experimental psychologists have begun taking it back and saying, no, obviously our dreams aren't, are anything but random. Um, they obviously relate to events in our lives and, and memories from our lives in, in a 
at least somewhat coherent manner. And then with this book, When Brains Dream, we, we try to pull together a model of dreaming that takes what we've learned over the last 25 years about sleep's role in memory processing and what that same period has given us in terms of better understanding of the content of dreams and the differences in dreams across different sleep stages, across different brain states, uh, to come up with a, a, a new model to help us understand um, the mechanisms and the functions of dreaming. That's fantastic. That's That was a, a roller coaster ride straight through from 1850 up to present day and the <laughs> The and and great job and the 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 model that you to propose in the book the next up model I, I want to come to that um shortly but first maybe just um develop a little bit more the um the neurobiology that you were um summarizing just now um and I had yeah I had a few questions from what you just said so firstly is it you you were indicating that it was the the synthesis part was. Yeah, from the activation synthesis model, um, mm -hmm. the uh, cognitive component, and if you like the the piece of the dreaming process that maybe um, speaks to what um, Freudian and other psychoanalytic dream theories are maybe interested in um, in cashing out, that's in the synthesis part of the activation synthesis model. Is that? Is that reasonable to say? And I asked that actually because... That's correct. That's yeah, correct. Yeah. I do recall reading I, I just want to say... From, you know, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the, the relevance of the activation piece to the synthesis piece is rather... Um, it's, it's sort of cross-dimensional. It's sort of like if you try to figure out what a car is and what its purpose is. And you talk a lot about the starter motor and all the starter motor is, is it's an electrical motor that turns a, a small gear that in turn causes the flywheel of the engine to, to slowly rotate. And in fact, start to produce enough electricity um, to get the engine firing. And after that, you know, you can take that starter and take it out of the car and throw it away and you can drive around just fine. So it's important to understand from one perspective how you get a car started with a starter motor in the old days with a crank, literally. Um, but it's really, in the end, sort of irrelevant to what the car does. And I think the same is true with activation synthesis. I mean, I think it's fascinating to talk about where does the brain get the initial stimulation that starts its process of a narrative construction of dream construction. But when, once that process has begun, it's sort of not relevant to the synthesis part, which is why it's a shame that, that Hobson chose to ignore that synthesis part for so long. Right, right. And the, I mean, and that, that it's interesting that you put it together that way because the, uh, the point I was just going to reflect on was the, I mean, I, I've seen, I don't know if it's a robust claim that, I've seen d descriptions or proposals of alternative sources of the ascending, uh, you know, arousal activation coming maybe from basal ganglia and like quote unquote motivational systems, mm -hmm. as opposed to the brainstem. 
and that 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 potentially having this is this is from Mark Soames and, and others, but the 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 source of the ascending arousal being significant with respect to Freudian dream interpretation, if it's coming from uh, a basal ganglia, you know, quasi motivational system as opposed to the you know completely dumb spinal cord, for want of a better way of describing it. Well, the spinal cord would object to that characterization. Um, but right, I mean, we're talking about, so the, that, that brainstem activation um, that comes up and activates the visual cortex also activates the amygdala. So that can also be a source of emotional um, activation in that process. And yes, as coming from the basal ganglia, you might be getting some um, some activation that's dopaminergic that would be more towards motivation. But in all of these cases, it's content-free, right? There's, there's nothing in the basal ganglia that will bring up memories of your mother. There's right, nothing right. in there that will bring up memories of, of forbidden desires. Um, it would just bring up dopaminergic activation. And that's really what Soames is saying. And I say, great, dopaminergic activation, amygdala activation, visual cortical activation, put all that into the mix and then ask the brain to, you know, crank that engine over and start a construction process. But, but the question is, where does it look to, to, to create that dream? And it's clear that it starts with memories from the day, that in almost all cases, dreams, uh, if you look at them hard enough and and try to look at them um, objectively, seem to have at least some sources that come from memories of events from the day. So that's probably from the synthesis point of view where it starts. Right, right. Um, So let's let's move on to synthesis and and memories and (laughs) and, uh, cortical systems. I'm but I have one other question on the ascending part. Um, it's kind of in between, really. Um, you, you, you got to some of the spirit of it when you're saying, you know, it's it's all just activation coming from, you know, lower ascending systems. But another feature of those ascending systems is they have um, that the, you know, four or five of them have their own particular neuro, like say, neurochemical flavor. Right, have the serotonergic system, dopaminergic system, cholinergic system, etc. And um, actually, the last book that I did read on dreams before yours was *The Dream Drugstore* by by J. Allen Hobson. Um, and and this right. is this is also you know a a kind of caricature <laughs> of um, of psychiatry, right? Is like brain as vat of chemicals. That's uh, in a, in a sense that's kind of how psychiatry thinks about the brain. So, um, but that that would be you know a version of what you were saying about okay not thinking about the uh the uh cognitive um and representational content of the cortex yet but just thinking about what's special about the neurochemical state of the brain in in dreaming uh, you know as opposed to waking and and slow wave sleep um and how does that relate to the the function of those ascending neuromodulatory systems Right. So the, the neuromodulation of the brain goes through dramatic changes 
as we first fall asleep and as we then cycle through REM, rapid eye movement sleep, and non-REM sleep. Um, when we go into sleep, all of those neuromodulatory systems, dopaminergic, cholinergic, noradrenergic, serotonergic, they all quiet down. If you look in, in rats with um, perfusion studies, the, um, the rate of release of those chemicals is decreased um, as you go into early non-REM sleep. Uh, and then when you go into REM sleep, you get this really quite phenomenal shift. Uh, release of serotonin from the RAFA, release of, of noradrenaline. Um, both of those are completely shut off during REM sleep. And at the same time, the release of acetylcholine skyrockets. So that release of acetylcholine, for example, in the hippocampus is higher during REM sleep than during waking. Uh, and this, this, you know, suggests the importance of REM sleep for memory processing. We know that if you give a, a muscarinic cholinergic blocker to someone when they're awake, they can't form new memories. They can, they can recall memories just fine, but they can't encode new information. So, so that acetylcholine shift from low in non-REM to, to high in REM is clearly going to be contributing to a lot of the memory processing um, effects that we see in sleep. Uh, there's more subtle things as well. When you, when you shut off noradrenaline, norepinephrine, uh, you shift the brain into a state where cognitively, psychologically, it's biased towards weaker associations as opposed to strong ones. We did studies back in... 1999-2000, where we would wake people up from either late non-REM sleep or from REM sleep, and then very quickly, literally in two to three minutes, put them through a, a semantic priming test, which is a, a cognitive psychological test of, of associative memory strengths. And we're able to show that when you wake someone up from REM sleep, the speed at which they can make an association, for example, from thief to wrong is faster than for a canonically strong association like right-wrong. So the brain is, is now biased towards searching for and, and activating these weaker associations, which is a characteristic, especially of REM sleep dreaming, where you have all these bizarre events happening that seems sort of very weakly connected to what's going on, but only just so. Um, you also see changes in information flow in the brain. When you go into uh, slow-wave sleep, the deeper portions of REM sleep, you find that information flow uh, tends to be from the hippocampus to the cortex, while flow from the cortex, neocortex, back to the hippocampus is, is pretty much shut down. And in REM sleep, that flips. So now you have lots of information flowing into the hippocampus, but almost nothing flowing out. And that's probably why when we dream, we never replay episodic memories. We had a paper out again around 2000, where we show that when people can identify or believe strongly that they can identify the waking sources of some dream element, 
It's never, and never means no more than three cases out of 399. Um, it, it never seems to actually replay the episodic memory that the dreamer identifies as the source of that dream element. So that shutdown of flow out of the hippocampus uh, probably plays a critical role in, in blocking that episodic replay. And you've got a very, very strong shutdown of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which of course is involved in uh, executive decision-making and, and logic and reasoning uh, and impulse control. And if you take those things and put them together, what you get is a kind of thinking, if you will, that's very different than you see when a person is awake. So when you're awake, you tend to look at strong associations to recent events and think about them. And you think about that event by replaying that episodic memory while you're considering the association. And your frontal cortex is throwing a lot of them out as, as irrelevant or irrational or illogical. And all of those constraints are gone when you dream. When you're dreaming, you only have that associative network in, in, in neocortical regions available for the constructing of a, of a dream. It does it by looking at weak associations and it does it without frontal uh, inhibition. Oh, and by the way, the limbic system is cranked up during, um, during REM sleep. All along that midline structures, um, the amygdala, the medial orbital frontal cortex, um, these regions are all more activated than during wake. And so it sets you up for sort of bizarre, hyper-associative, emotional, unchecked kind of cognition that we call dreaming. Right. So so we have the, the I mean, it's fascinating that we re you really go from the, the chemical synaptic level right up to the cognitive level and all the systems, um, the systems neurophysiology in between. In, in pulling together that picture, I mean, just to kind of paraphrase, so you had the the basically the kind of gain control change with um, with the noradrenaline drop. You had the you have the um, uh, let's say memory or or plasticity switch or or modulation with the cholinergic changes, and then you have all of these these activation of frontal and and uh, medial hippocampal and amygdala systems doing uh, like systems level, sit, let's say systems level changes in addition to a probably profoundly different neurochemical state that a given neuron is experiencing during the, during the dreaming part of sleep. Do you have a, right. and it's almost... like a preference or a, for which of those, you know, if you were to say, okay, the either the phenomenology or just broadly speaking the brain state of uh, the the dreaming brain is the the neurochemical switch or the um the systems interaction switches um do you have a i don't know if you could kind of give them a weighting like 50 50 70 30 um or would you, would you just um uh, You're not not answer that question but out of principle Right. You're asking me which vitamin is the one that I really need to take if I want to be healthy. <laughs> I suppose um, I have. The, the, the brain evolved. The brain evolved all of these uh, regulatory 
uh, modulations, all the neurochemical ones, all the connectivity ones, all the regional activation ones. They, they all evolved um, presumably to work in, in synergy. And we could try if we had enough millions of dollars and dozens of years to sort of go through phylogeny and try to figure out the order in which those things appeared. But I think taking away any one of them dampens um, both our ability to do memory processing during sleep and our ability to use dreaming uh, in the service of that memory processing. So my background, I'm a biochemist by training, so I'll, I'll vote for the neuromodulators. But that's well, that was what I was team. maybe getting at when I asked at the, at the start. I was thinking that was uh, something that maybe spoke to some of your early um, experience there. Right. But okay. Again, so, so maybe you didn't um, have the the other. Um, so, so your your main scientific emphasis is in memory, and you've touched on that already. I have one other question on basically kind of brain state. Let's say before we um, go a little bit further into the um, the specifics of the memory consolidation in sleep and dreaming is um, let's call it say a neuroimaging perspective. So what what does a dreaming brain and let's say also a sleeping brain so a brain in slow wave sleep or non non-rem sleep and rem sleep or dreaming and non-dreaming sleep look like in um the type of uh, non-invasive imaging techniques that you use so you work with eeg you work with fmri uh, you, you mentioned a little bit like certain bits light up but could you give us a little kind of narrative summary of if i'm looking at some some brain imaging data what is uh, what do i see when the brain is dreaming well, if you start by looking at the EEG, at the electrical activity of the brain, what you find is that as you fall asleep, you start to see a slowing down of the EEG. You start to pick up clear oscillations um, in frequency band of, of 10 or 12 hertz. And as you go deeper into non-REM sleep, those, those oscillations get larger and slower so that by the time... Uh, you get into slow-wave sleep, which is the deepest stages of sleep. As its name suggests, you have these large um, 200 microvolt uh, surface recording waves um, in the EEG that are running at about 1 to 4 hertz at, at slow speeds. Um, and it's I, I sometimes describe it as sort of being outside a... Uh, an amphitheater where there's a football game going on and, and hearing people clapping rhythmically together. You can't pick out the individual people, but since they're clapping uh, in unison, you can pick it up even outside the brain as it is. Um, and then as you go into REM sleep, the, the EEG becomes fast and desynchronized again and looks very much like the waking EEG. In fact, REM sleep was originally called paradoxical sleep because when they looked at the EEG, they thought that the subjects were awake while they were actually asleep. Um, if you look with PET, positron emission tomography, what you see, first of all, is that when you go into slow-wave sleep, into deep non-REM sleep, the whole brain quiets down. You have about a 40% reduction in glucose and oxygen consumption. And it's pretty uniform across the brain. And then as you come up into REM sleep, you start to see a divergence. You see some regions 
like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, where oxygen and glucose utilization drops even further, showing that they're becoming even less active. While other regions, and, and specifically uh, the midline uh, limbic system, uh, frontal association cortices, the amygdala, uh, these regions start to show increased levels of activation, some even beyond those that you see in waking, and the hippocampus also in REM sleep. So you see this shift um, towards quiet in, in slow-wave sleep, and then actually increased uh, activity regionally during REM sleep. With dreaming, we can't say much because we don't have a, a physiological measure of, of dreaming. Giulio Tononi in Wisconsin has done some studies where he has uh, recorded high-density EEG and then woken people up to find out when they are dreaming and when they aren't dreaming, and has found statistically at least that when people on awakening report that they were dreaming, they tend to show local decreases in those low-frequency band oscillations in the EEG in posterior cortical regions. But beyond that, we don't really have good markers of when we dream. Is the um, the increase in the slow wave and the increase in the hippocampal activity, is there a good case for a causal relationship there? If there's a hippocampal theta delta rhythmic activity propagating up, or is that is that confusing thing? For dreaming? Yeah. Are you saying for dreaming? No, I'm saying for slow well, wave. They don't see it. They don't see it. Well, they, yeah. The, well, causal is tricky because it's all correlational, right? What you want to do, and we can do that now, is we can use methods to increase slow wave sleep. Normally, it's sort of a global increase. We can do that pharmacologically, but we can do transcranial electrical stimulation um, to get local increases in slow wave activity and then ask these questions. But no one has done that yet. We don't, we don't have experimental in the sense of, of causally aimed studies uh, to look at what causes dreaming. And another issue is it might turn out that we're actually dreaming 75, 80% of the night and that not dreaming or not being able to recall any dreaming um, is the much much less common state. So it, it might have to do more with regulation of the intensity of the dreaming or, or how easily those, those dreams are recalled on waking up. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's move over to memory full on now. So um, at some level it's all, it's, I guess it's obvious that um, we, it's probably been known to mankind for a long time that a good night's sleep uh, helps with with the uh, memory. Um, it seems unlikely that that was a 20th century discovery per se at a at a psychological level. But the the real appreciation of the role of sleep and, and kind of unpacking the mechanisms of sleep in, in memory consolidation at the, um, at all levels, at a, at a, um, neurochemical level, at a synaptic level, at a physiological level. This is something that really came through in part from your own work, um, as well as others in the, 
I guess, around the turn of the 21st century. Would that be reasonable to say that, that there was a big boost in the understanding of the role of, uh, the role of memory consolidation in sleep around about that time, or would you locate it earlier? No, it, it's right at that time, and, and I've got the, the graph of number of publications with sleep and memory in the title, and right around 2000, 2001, the, the curve just turns from pretty flat for the previous 50 years at a half dozen papers a year to the current rate, which is upwards of 400 papers a year. And, you know, one thing that marked that inflection point was as was a review article that we had in, in science uh, on sleep, memory, and dreams. In, in the year 2000, every year science has one issue that has a special section that's aimed for the neuro, times for the neurosciences meeting. And in 2000, they decided to do that on, on sleep. And so the articles, you know, had the cover of Science Magazine, the booth at the Neuroscience Society meeting was giving out copies of that issue, and it, it suddenly gained it gained attention and it gained focus. You commented that we've known for a long time that sleep obviously has something to do with memory, but mostly I think the concept was that if you hadn't had enough sleep, then the next day it's going to be hard to form memories, that, that sleep is important for the subsequent encoding of memories. And what we've learned over the last 20 years is that it's even more important for the memories that we formed the day before, for the memories encoded before we went to sleep, that probably all the memories that we form during the day are, are considered again during the night. And 200, 400, 2,000, 2,000 papers now published on, on sleep and memory since since the year 2000. And they all together basically say that every aspect of memory processing occurs while we sleep. Memories are stabilized so that they're resistant to interference. They're strengthened so that memories for how to perform tasks lead to better performance the day after um, than at the end of training itself. Sleep helps with the integration of new information into pre-existing uh, cognitive memory networks. It helps with the extraction of gist um, from memories from the day before. It can discover rules um, in, in complex data sets that are uh, perceived, experienced during the day. Uh, it can selectively decide to retain emotional components of an episodic memory while letting other aspects of that same memory be forgotten. All of this processing, all of this work to try to turn the memory into a more useful construct, one that will be more useful in one's future, seems to happen while we're sleeping. Yeah, one of the um, and this process particularly compelling uh, kind of phrases that I that I've heard that is in a way it, it's a little bit more general than what you were just describing is is that and i apologize i don't know the correct attribution for this but that um sleep is the price we pay for the ability to learn as in the uh, and and specifically the there's this notion of the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis as in like the 
well, the the ability to learn, which sometimes translates right. in neuroscience as neuroplasticity. Uh, neuroplasticity is fundamentally requires um, it appears sleep-like processes in order to allow new memories to be formed. Right. So Giulio Tononi and um, Chiara Turelli have come up with this model of synaptic homeostasis, um, which argues that while we sleep, the brain does a, in their original model, a global downscaling of all synaptic strengths. The argument is you can't keep strengthening your synapses all the time, every day, all over the brain, or else you'll reach a point where the, the brain is functionally saturated and you go into uh, an epileptic seizure because the brain just starts firing on its own. At, at some point, you reach a, a level of saturation where you have to downscale. And although there's little evidence that we actually are reaching that state um, after a single date, day, um, their argument was that you need to downscale synapses and that we do that while we sleep. And that's the synaptic homeostasis model. They've sort of modified it now because of, of pushback from people like me arguing that if, as they suggest, all synapses are downscaled by 20% every night, you know, how do you keep memories for years? Um, without them being completely lost. So, so now it's a selective downscaling um, where only those recently strengthened synapses which are in some way calculated to be unimportant get downscaled. And that would fit in directly with everything else that people have been saying, just trying to provide a, a cellular mechanism. And whether it's actual strengthening of synaptic connections, and there is good evidence for that, or whether it's the absence of, of weakening of synaptic connections. Um, I don't think, I think it's undoubtedly a mixture of both of those. And the net result is um, not just a brain that's better able to learn again tomorrow, but a brain in which memories have clearly been modified over the course of the night. And, and Tononi's model really doesn't address that issue of the kinds of complex processing of memories that happens during the night. So that has to be a, a, a separate and parallel process. And they can both be important, just like the, the systems level changes in brain activity and the neuromodulatory changes um, are both necessary for this sleep-dependent memory processing and dreaming to occur. So I'm happy with, with the synaptic homeostasis as long as it's seen as, as part of, of the mechanisms that, that lead to improved memory across the night. That's, that's fascinating. I didn't know there'd been, uh, I didn't know you'd been having that dialogue. Uh, I should, uh, I should check out yeah. if you have some references you can point me to on that. It's an interesting conversation. Um, and this actually leads to one of the things that I, I want to ask you about. And it, for the, for me, the, the the single major thing that I really learned from reading the book is, uh, and and you you kind of summarize this as something like a caricature argument or like what how people used to think about things, um, is that there are there's a lot more memory processing going on during dreaming than I think is maybe the textbook description, um, and th that so I want to just follow that on from the discussion of the synaptic homeostasis because I think the the 
uh, way that's been proposed at the um, at the cellular level really relates very strongly to the to the slow wave and to the up and down states, which is a feature of slow wave sleep, but not not so much or not at all a feature of REM sleep. So, you know, is that is um, is the is the synaptic homeostasis model dependent uh, specifically a slow wave sleep phenomenon? in your eyes or in Tononi's eyes? And does it extend to REM as well? It does not extend to REM. And there have been these, he gave a talk at, um, at Harvard a few years back now, where he's talking about how sleep is the price the brain pays uh, for synaptic homeostasis. And, and I asked him, well, what about REM sleep? Because there doesn't seem to be any of this homeostatic activity, any of this downscaling, any of these slow waves in REM sleep. And he says, he responds, oh, I'm not talking about REM sleep. So, you know, when, when Hobson, Alan Hobson talks about dreaming, he says it's just REM sleep, really. And when Tononi talks about synaptic homeostasis, it's all non-REM and it's mostly slow wave sleep. And it brings up the interesting question of why we have these different stages of sleep. And I've, I've argued that the, you know, we see in slow wave sleep different types of memory processing. Slow wave sleep is really good for that stabilization and consolidation of episodic memories. Whereas all of these more complex types of abstraction and extraction of information from memories seems to correlate with REM sleep. It might be that you just need very different brain states if you want to optimize these different types of memories. I give the example of um, a task that shows a 20% overnight improvement is a task where you learn to type a sequence of keys on the keyboard, classically 41324, which you type over and over uh, during training and then at testing some hours later with or without intervening sleep. And you could imagine that the brain state that would optimize an enhancement of that performance capability would be very different from the brain state that would say um, selectively strengthen a particular episodic memory from the day before. And so maybe the brain just had to evolve these different brain states first for that stabilization and consolidation of, of episodic memories because slow wave sleep came first evolutionarily and then only much, much later does REM sleep appear and allow for more sophisticated abstraction of knowledge. Um, and maybe we needed those two different brain states to do those two different types of memory processing. Right. And is it, we mentioned before that the big boost in, in understanding and the, um, the record of it in the publication record and so on in um in 2000 so in the case of would you could you put a date on a rough date on uh, whether there's been a similar realization or a similar kind of boost in terms of the um the understanding of the role of dreaming um in memory consolidation or another way of saying this like the as i said the what i what i think is the um kind of caricature simple textbook description is that memory consolidation is a slow wave sleep phenomenon so how would you how would you go about correcting the record on that how what 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 would be 
well, is firstly, like, is that actually a correct kind of, as I said, caricature tech, textbook description of how people broadly think about things? Has the thinking on that changed very recently or has that, has that been more or less the thinking for a while? Because to me, that, as I said, that was, that was something that was relatively new to me when I was reading the book is how much you, you really do know and that what you've learned from your work about, um, about dreaming in, in memory consolidation in particular, which I thought was really more understood in the context of slow wave sleep. So it's interesting for, for a long time, um, you know, going back to the discovery of REM sleep in the 1950s, um, when people looked at those EEG differences, they saw the large slow waves of, of slow wave sleep and thought that that was a sign that the brain was basically inactive because you also see that in people in coma. And in REM sleep, the brain's EEG looked very similar to waking. So for a long time, the assumption was that everything was really happening in REM sleep and not in slow wave sleep. And somewhere around, I'm guessing now, but probably around 2010, um, people started looking at types of memory, uh, which are clearly um, correlated with slow wave sleep. And the most classic example is, is word pairs, where you train people to memorize a list of 20 or 40 word pairs, where I give you the first word, and you can recall the second one. And, and that became a, a dominant experimental paradigm. And since that one turns out to depend on slow wave sleep, they really developed this, this view, this, this, uh, this general consensus that slow wave sleep was what's important. But I don't think there's any real evidence for that, that slow wave sleep is more important, for example, than lighter non-REM sleep or, or REM sleep, that they each seem to be involved in a different type of memory processing. And so depending on what kind of memory you're interested in, you find one state of sleep or another to be the really important one. If you're looking at people with memory deficits, if you're looking at elderly people, if you're looking at Alzheimer patients, those are all disruptions of episodic memory. And so that slow wave sleep becomes uh, correctly the, the focus of attention. Plus, we now have sleep spindles, which are seen in non-REM sleep, but not REM sleep, uh, which are these one second long bursts of, of synchronized activity at about 10 to 16 hertz, which are known to be involved in, in memory consolidation. They cause a, a burst of increase in calcium influx into neurons. We can experimentally manipulate them and cause greater or lesser memory consolidation across the night. So if you want to be looking at cellular and, and small network scale uh, markers and mechanisms for memory processing during sleep, then you're going to be focusing, again, on non-REM sleep. So I, I think it's, it's sort of like where the spotlight is shining uh, is where people go and look. But I think, it's, it's, I think if I pushed any researcher in the field, they would agree that, that REM sleep uh, is equally important to the, that memory processing that occurs during sleep. 
Okay. Okay. Good. And you know, I think it's probably always the case that um, uh, how, how you just described it's uh, that it's it's complicated um, when you when you drill down. So one of the things you do do in the book, and I I gather this is probably one of the um, intellectual fruits of your collaboration with Tony was this uh, this model that, that you have now called Next Up. Uh, which stands for ne- ne- network exploration, and actually I I forget the rest of it, um, which which characterizes some of the some of these regions, some of the the role of these different um, sleep processes in different types of memory. So, did you want to talk us through the the next up model and how that kind of synthesizes um, the different parts of the puzzle for you? Sure. One of the fascinating things about dream research is that there has been almost no consideration of the function of dreaming. Uh, Freud actually thought that the function of dreaming was to prevent memory processing. It was to prevent those memories of repressed, suppressed uh, desires from coming into the brain and being processed. Uh, But there's been very little discussion of that and it tends to be along the line of well it helps your brain think about emotional issues but not even to process them necessarily so it's it's been an area that's perhaps not that different from where sleep research was uh at the start of the 21st century right at the end of the 20th century alan hobson uh was famously quoted as 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 saying that the only known function of sleep was to cure sleepiness. So, you know, even as recently as 2000, we really didn't have anything much to say about why we slept, what the function of sleeping was. I mean, it was supposed to let the brain rest, but why more than just lying quietly? Um, so we really didn't have studies that were looking at the function of sleep. Um, and the same is true for dreaming, and that extends even to the present day, really. So, so in writing this book, Tony and I chose to put together a model that can arguably explain both um, the mechanism of dream construction and, and its function. And next up, the name of the model stands for Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. And the argument is that when we dream, what the brain is doing is it's, it's recalling uh, memories of events from the day, memories that have in some way been tagged during that waking period um, as important and unfinished memories or memories of important and unfinished concepts or concerns or, or events. And it takes those tagged memories and it starts looking for associations to them that are more or less distant and less distant in non-REM sleep and more distant in REM sleep. In REM sleep, specifically looking for distant, weak associations. And the brain then analyzes whether this association is useful, is one that should be strengthened and, and made available for one's subsequent waking life. It's not that different from what we do when we're awake, except for the fact that it's looking at these more um, 
unexpected, these more distant, these weaker associations. And it's doing it without the filtering of the frontal cortex that would tend to reject most, if not all of these, as irrelevant. And then the issue of what dreaming is about is how the brain goes about testing these newly discovered associations. And the method it uses is to create a a narrative, um, a story, if you will, that plays out in real time and plays out within our conscious awareness. And what's fascinating about it is it's exactly what we do when we're awake. If you decide that you're going to try to catch this seminar this afternoon, um, but the timing is kind of tight, what you do is you you imagine the process of getting there. You say to yourself, well, okay, I'm going to have to leave early, which means I'm going to have to get out of this meeting early. So I should warn people at the start of the meeting. And then you sort of imagine yourself doing that. You imagine yourself, you know, am I going to take the car? I'm going to take the bus. I'm going to try to walk there. How am I going to get there? Um, how long does that seminar go? At the end of the seminar, I have to get home and I'm supposed to be cooking tonight. So I'm going to have to talk to my partner and figure out whether we can work something out around that. But we, we construct the story and we watch it play out in front of our eyes, if you will. We imagine it. And then what we do, and this is the part that we're least aware of, is we react to it emotionally. We re- react to it with just unbearable anxiety and worry. And then we decide, you know what, I just can't do it. Or we decide that we're really excited about it. We have these thoughts of really learning some new information, getting to talk to some people we've been meaning to talk to. And we imagine all of that. And there's positive emotions that come up. And we say, okay, I'm going to make it work somehow. So what are we doing? We're we're taking a current concern. We're imagining a future scenario that might solve that problem, solve that concern. We're watching our own emotional reaction to that scenario. And then we're deciding we'll do it or we won't do it. And that's what the brain does when we dream. It takes an ongoing concern, some unfinished business. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be something remarkably small. You might have passed someone on the street who looked like they might be homeless, but you don't know. And you're curious. You sort of walk away saying, I wonder if if she was homeless. And that's all. It's just a question that wasn't answered. And so your brain, as you're asleep, identifies this as an unfinished question. It goes and it looks for associations to that image and to that concept of homelessness. And it constructs a story, and then it plays out that story. And you, the dreamer, are almost always in that story, and you react emotionally within that story. And based on that reaction, your brain says, okay, relevant, useful association, and literally strengthens the synaptic connections between the recent memory and the older association so that that association will be more likely to come up in the future when the triggering memory is recalled. Now, why does it have to dream about it? If you read um, Antonio uh, 
Oh, I pause. Um, Damasio? What's his? Oh, Damasio, right. If you read Antonio Damasio's book, uh, The Feeling of What Happens, Damasio basically argues that consciousness is a gimmick that appeared at some point in evolution which gave organisms the ability to do exactly what I'm describing, to create an imagined scenario and let it play out, to imagine how something might happen, to plan, if you will, for the future. And he says that the way you do that is you create the scenario and you monitor your emotional reactions to it. He's done work with people with calcified amygdala who basically have dysfunctional amygdala and cannot have emotional reactions to things in the way that normal people do. And they can't even make simple decisions that you would not call emotional decisions. I mean, for us scientists, we think our decisions are rational, but they may be rational in one sense, but in the end, they're always driven by an emotional response. We either say to ourselves, I like that, I'm going to do that, or I don't like that, I'm not going to do it. Or we say, I'm not sure about that. I have to sleep on that one. So, so that's how the brain evolved to, to perform this incredibly powerful function of imagining future scenarios. I mean, for a scientist, that's what we do par excellence. We imagine doing an experiment. We imagine how it might turn out. We imagine what that would mean. We then imagine what experiment would follow that and how this leads us to greater knowledge about the world. We couldn't do that without consciously imagining and emotionally evaluating different scenarios. And what dreaming does at night is it lets that process go into hyperdrive and look at these much more distant and unexpected associations. It allows us to be much more creative in our evaluation of possible outcomes of different types um, of events and of the usefulness of different types of associations. And again, the physiology of sleep, of the dreaming brain, is different from the waking brain in another way. In the waking brain, when we go through these imagined scenarios, we get to the end of it, we have that emotional feeling about it, and we make a decision. When we dream, we don't. We don't at the end of a dream say, okay, I'm going to break up with, with that person I've been seeing. Okay, I'm going to take that job in another city. We only explore the possibilities. And that's what Next Up is about. It's neural network exploration to understand possibilities. We're not looking for solutions. We're trying to define the solution space to understand what the possibilities are. And then we'll leave it to the waking brain the next day or at some future date to come back to this problem, not necessarily even remembering that we dreamt about it, but having those strengthened associative links that allow us to more creatively, more productively, more effectively uh, solve these ongoing problems. I like that you brought in there the, this, this contrast between the, the rational animal and the emotional animal, because the emotional animal is it really is kind of front and center in, in your approach and obviously in Damasio's as well. The, the way that you initially described it in terms of um, 
trying or looking for associations and then deciding if they're useful the 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 thought that initially comes to mind there for me is is like are they logically coherent or cognitively coherent right but i think that would be something you would be lean towards describe thinking of more as a as a um cognitive rationalization of associations but the emphasis with you is really so, much on these emotional system responses but they're, they're they're integrated right i mean they ultimately these 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 amygdala driven or limbic system driven emotional responses are standing in place of or or in a way kind of summarizing cognitive assessments of coherence and so on would that be correct yeah i think it's important to say that we're not saying rational is subservient to emotional, that emotional is, is a better mechanism to use than rational. Emotions used without rationality give us the sort of situations we saw in Washington last week. I mean, if you just let emotions run without any rational constraints, you get craziness. What, what, what I'm saying and what Damasio says and what we're saying with this model is that after you rationally put forward an argument how do you make a decision or, or how do you know what to decide? You know, I, I gave an example. You get offered a great job in a lousy city and you have to decide whether to take it or not. And you can do that thing where you take the sheet of paper and you draw four quadrants and it's stay in Boston, pluses, minuses, go to Iowa, pluses and minuses, and write down all the things you can think of. And if you do that, people will uniformly tell you, it doesn't really help you make the decision because the decision in the end is an emotional analysis of all of that rational data. You want that rational data, but then you're, you're, you know, you're going to put it on a scale to weigh it, see which side of that sheet of paper has more entries or more words. No, you're going to take it all together and you're going to weigh it in your limbic system. And your limbic system will say, this pan is heavier or this pan is heavier. So you need that emotional response to evaluate all that rational processing. This is great. So the, I, I like the, yeah, I really like the summary of the model there and, and the, um, the role that comes through for, um, yeah, the, the cognitive emotional combination in the dreaming brain. So what we've done so far, you know, through this conversation, we've been very, uh, it's been an, a neurobiologist talking to a neurobiologist and, um, and it's been great. The thing that we haven't touched on yet, which I, I'd like to cover as a final little conversation thread before we wrap up is the clinical implications and dimensions of the things we've been discussing, the next up model in particular, if you think there are some interesting light that that sheds or, or, or. Uh, vice versa, if there's clinical information that kind of comes in to inform your formulation of that hypothesis and, and kind of more broadly as well, like what is the, the role and the, the, the future directions for, um, for using this understanding we are having and developing in the, um, neurobiology of dreaming for conditions that people are experiencing in psychiatry and neurology. Yeah. Let me, let me put in a 30-second blast that you can 
integrate into earlier stuff because I never got around to mentioning it. And that is the fact that it turns out that when you're in REM sleep, when you look at overall brain activity, it looks very much like the default mode network that researchers see during quiet wake in humans. If people just lie in a magnet and are told to do nothing at all, they see a, a stereotypical pattern of activity, which is now referred to as the default mode network. It's, I like to say it's what your brain is doing when it's not doing anything. And that's been shown to be a network that's involved in, amongst other things, um, future, future, uh, the, the mental construction of future scenarios, the recall of episodic memory. Um, it involves networks involved in spatial navigation and in theory of mind. And these are all things that are involved in dreaming too. Um, and, and so we know that when we're not doing anything, our brain isn't empty. Most of us as kids try to think nothing at all and then get to this point where we say, oh, good, I'm not. And then, oh, shit, I am. You know, it's like we can't stop thinking. And it might be that all the time that we're, quote, not doing anything, we're doing the same kind of future projection, imagining scenarios um, with that same purpose of understanding better um, more mundane, more reasonable, more expected possibilities. I think maybe the most profound clinical significance of, of Next Up and of theories of dreaming has to do with understanding PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, is, is a, a clinical psychiatric condition where people who have gone through um, extreme trauma uh, instead of going through the normal process of, of healing and recovery from that psychological trauma, basically remain in a hyper-aroused, um, fearful uh, state for, for years after the event. And one of the interesting aspects of PTSD is what are known as PTSD dreams. I, I had mentioned earlier that when we dream, we don't replay actual episodic memories. We dream about things that happened. We dream about associated memories that construct a story related to, but not containing that memory. The exception to that is PTSD, where patients have these nightmares, some of them every night for years and years, where they are literally back in that memory. They're back in the location of the traumatic event and re-experiencing as if they were there again. And these dreams are happening in REM sleep, and they're happening at a time when the brain shouldn't be able to even activate those memories, let alone replay them. And we think what's happening is that the hypervigilance of the PTSD is known to carry over into sleep. You can do the, you can determine that by looking at levels of adrenergic arousal, for example, during sleep. And we think that that means that there's continued noradrenergic release during REM sleep when it's normally completely shut off. And that increased noradrenergic release allows the hippocampus to reactivate those memories in ways that it normally doesn't do in either REM or non-REM sleep. 
And if you look at the types of processing that we know happen to memories while we sleep normally, how gist is extracted, how detail is lost, how the brain will hold on to the emotional core of a memory, but allow the slow forgetting of all the detail associated with it, how it actually allows the development of insight uh, in some studies. It might be that PTSD itself is a disorder of sleep-dependent memory processing, that recovery from PTSD requires the kinds of memory processing that we now have seen occur either preferentially or only during sleep. And those PTSD dreams might be a biomarker of the breakdown of those memory processing systems. So that's probably where we see the the greatest role of, of sleep and of dreaming in, in psychiatric disorders. But of course, depression is, is not that different. Depression might be related to a failure of, of sleep-dependent memory processing. One of the things that we know about the clinically depressed individual is that they tend to have REM sleep much earlier in the night. Normally, our REM sleep doesn't come until the most of it. The vast majority only comes in the latter half of the night. But uh, patients who are clinically depressed um, have their REM sleep come much earlier in the night. And we don't know why that is. And we don't know what its impact is. But REM sleep, we know, is where emotionally charged episodic memories are processed. And moving the timing of that processing might lead to an alteration in how those memories are processed so that specifically negative memories are retained and retained with more uh, significance than they would be in normal individuals. That's great. So, yeah, we have, we have PTSD, we have depression. I mean, there's obviously there's also straight up neuro, neurological sleep conditions as well, which are more directly and I guess historically understood to have strong relationships to dreaming on the first two though i mean so you know you're you're in a you're in a psychiatry department you have a clinical dimension to your work the the ideas you just described contribute to say understanding some of the mechanisms have you given much thought as well to where this could lead in terms of interventions well both interventions and monitoring so, for example, do you do you see a, a, sure. a utility in uh, tracking people's levels of REM, the the order of their sleep stages, and so on, and that actually feeding back into the clinic and a, on a kind of you know beyond beyond just a clinical study? And you also mentioned things like uh, using using brain stimulation, or you know, people also use uh, auditory um, auditory stimulation to try and promote. Uh, in that case, I guess deep sleep, but that's another type of intervention as well. So are there, are there particular directions there that you think are, are really promising? One thing that I've been looking at for the last 10 years, uh, along with Dara Minowak, who's a, a researcher at Mass General Hospital, also in the Harvard Medical uh, Complex, is looking at this sleep-dependent memory consolidation in schizophrenia. And it turns out 
that schizophrenia patients can learn normally in the evening when we train them, but don't show normal overnight sleep-dependent improvement in tasks that we train them on. And this has been shown both for motor learning tasks, like the finger tapping task where they're learning to type the sequence 41324, or episodic memory tasks, like learning word pairs for recall the next morning. And it turns out that that failure of sleep-dependent memory consolidation appears to be correlated with a marked reduction in the number of sleep spindles that you see in their EEG. In our earlier studies, we were seeing a 40% reduction um, in the number of sleep spindles that schizophrenia patients had across a night, and that that reduction correlated with how much more poorly or how much less they improved on that finger tapping task across the same night. So we're really excited about the possibility of doing something to enhance those spindles and, and restore that sleep-dependent memory processing. It turns out that in schizophrenia now, um, we have clinically reached the point where the positive symptoms, the, the frank psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, um, we have under control with medication. The, the main problem remaining has to do with the cognitive deficits associated with schizophrenia. And some of those are clearly deficits in sleep-dependent memory consolidation. So uh, with Deraminoic, we have been um, looking at various types of medications um, that lead to increases in spindles and, and hope that that might um, in turn lead to improvements in their memory processing. It's more complicated than that because those spindles are actually mediating the transfer of information from the hippocampus up to the cortex um, with sharp wave ripples in the hippocampus uh, providing the context for sending that information up to the cortex. And some of these medications that we've looked at increase spindles, but in, in rat models appear to decrease um, those hippocampal spindles. So the trick is to find the drug that would do both of those things, that would increase the spindles and either maintain or even enhance uh, the hippocampal fast wave ripples. But, but that, that direction, whether it's through um, cortical stimulation, either electrically or, as you mentioned, with sound at, at slow wave frequencies um, or, or medications, whether we can find a way to improve their sleep-dependent memory. The same question comes up with the elderly. Um, as you know, memory goes to hell in a handbasket as you get older, and that decrease correlates with the normal decrease in slow wave activity that comes with aging. And Matt Walker has a paper where he shows that in, in the elderly or the near elderly, 60 and above, that the impairment of sleep-dependent memory consolidation correlates better with the decrease in slow wave activity than it does with age per se. So it might be that that memory deficit we see with normal aging is in fact due to uh, a breakdown of slow wave sleep. Uh, and, and people like uh, Phyllis Z at Northwestern University have been using 
uh, various types of electrical or auditory stimulation to see if they can drive improvements uh, in the memory of the elderly. So that's another place where intervention now seems to be um, potentially valuable. I always put in a caveat when we talk about these processes because, again, people are looking at episodic memory and trying to uh, overcome deficits in it. And I think that's fine. But the idea of just saying that increasing slow wave activity is going to be an improvement is probably wrong. Uh, Evolution has probably produced an optimal mix of REM sleep, light non-REM sleep, and deeper slow wave non-REM sleep uh, that gives the best overall outcome for the individual. We know that if you train people on a task whose consolidation correlates with REM sleep, they'll actually get more REM sleep the next night after they learn it. Or in another case, they'll get more spindles the next night. So the brain has sort of evolved to optimize it overall and even on a night-by-night basis. It's when you have clinical deficits, when something has gone wrong, that it makes sense to to try to uh, alter the structure of sleep, to push it towards more slow wave activity or more slow wave sleep, for example. There was there were studies I remember oh around 2000 where they showed that you could increase uh, key enzymes in the brain of rats and enhance their memory and that that seemed to be a way to improve on the rat. And, and my response was if, if putting those enzymes into higher production was evolutionarily valuable, it would have been done by evolution millions of years ago. The fact that it hasn't been done suggests, again, that we're at the optimal rate overall for memory processing. Okay. Okay. Well, it's it's fascinating and it's it's actually inspiring to, to hear about the directions that you and others are taking these insights in terms of developing some new ideas for therapies. And yeah, the, the idea that a large amount of age-related memory issues actually relate to age-related sleep issues. That is, that is quite a profound idea right there. Well, Bob, yeah. this has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, We've really gone, gone to town let me, on let me, let me go. the dreaming brain. Let me go and do one more disorder, though, okay? Yeah, sure, sure. Can I do one more sleep disorder? Okay. Another place where a sleep disorder is, is relevant to neurology in this case is REM sleep behavior disorder. Uh, in REM sleep behavior disorder, the, the individual acts out their dreams. Normally in REM sleep, there's a descending spinal tract that actively inhibits, hyperpolarizes all of our alpha motor neurons and inhibits the acting out of our dreams. Um, in REM sleep behavior disorder, that inhibition breaks down and people actually act out their dreams. This is not sleepwalking, where you're sort of oriented in the room and and, and walk around and and do things. Uh, In REM behavior disorder, you act out the dreams. So if you're being attacked, you might fight back, and your your bed partner might end up in the emergency room. Or you might leap out of bed and run away, running full speed into a plate glass window or down a staircase. Um, So it's, it's, it's clinically an important um, disorder. 
But what we have learned is that it's actually a biomarker for for incipient Parkinson's disease. At this point, there's like an 80% conversion rate that people who have REM sleep behavior disorder go on to develop Parkinson's, which again is a is a movement disorder, a dopaminergic movement disorder. So it's not surprising that that connection uh, is, is found. But it makes RBD, REM behavior disorder, uh, in many cases, the earliest symptom of Parkinson's, often coming five or even 10 years before any overt symptoms of Parkinson's. And although to this point, it hasn't been of any clinical value, that is to say, it doesn't allow the, the initiation of treatments that might stop or slow the development of the Parkinson's. It again gives us a, a window into uh, an incipient neurological disease and gives us the opportunity to try to to treat that disorder before it actually develops. And I guess that, I mean, it, it's actually fascinating just to think about that. So the, 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 the principal pathology, um, cellular pathology with, with Parkinson's is death of the neurons in the, um, the substantia nigra. Uh, and right. So it's a lot so, of dopaminergic neurons. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, so is the, th- is that, how do you, how do you connect that? Say just, I, I guess it would be a, and then the symptoms with Parkinson's, they only manifest when you have something like 80, 90% loss. Right. So I guess, I guess the thinking would be, well, maybe this is this, these symptoms manifest at earlier levels, 50%, 30%. I'm just, I'm just guessing the numbers there, but how do you, right. or even, even is there a connection there then like from the, from the, 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 the behavior of the, the, um, the manifestation of the REM sleep behavior disorder in terms of acting out your dreams um, and the uh, the physiology of the actual motor impairments that eventually develop into Parkinson's. Yeah, it's curious because we're seeing a release of motor activity in REM behavior disorder uh, and a stifling of it in Parkinson's. We don't know yet whether with REM behavior disorder, we're seeing cell death at a level in that's too small to produce Parkinsonian symptoms. We don't know if it's a decrease in activity, that is to say a loss of dopamine within those dopaminergic neurons which are still alive. And so, so we're sort of at the moment at a standstill in understanding how the developing pathology of Parkinson's actually produces REM behavior disorder. But, but it's, we're early in this. We're early in this. It's only in the last five or 10 years that we've really become clear about the association at all. Right. Because you have the, it gives us a way to look at it. Or the, the, the disinhibition through indirect, the, the disinhibition in the, in the corticostriatal circuits in, um, in the, well, the, the direct and the indirect circuits relating to Parkinson's between the codex and the basal ganglia. So there's kind of, there's a disinhibition there. You mentioned release, right? Release and stifling. So you kind of see how that would go there, but then the, right. the, um, the, the motor suppression in, in sleep is a suppression of, uh, at the level of the brainstem, right? So there's, yeah, that, that yeah, it, it's actually, Two types of things actually at the level of the alpha motor neuron. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 
So we're early. We're early in it. We don't. I don't think we have good models uh, either for how Parkinson's develops in its very early stages before before we can see it because we don't know who we should be studying. But now we do. Now we can take someone who's got REM behavior disorder and say, okay, this guy is probably going to develop Parkinson's in the next 10 years. And you can start monitoring those people much, much earlier and watch how that Parkinson's develops and and try to determine what has already happened that is, is the cause of the REM behavior disorder. Very interesting. Okay. Well, well, again, um, Bob, this has been a, a great discussion. We really got into the guts of how the brain works and how the brain dreams. Um, so, and, and we've gone on for a fair amount of time and we've really covered a lot. So thanks an, an awful lot for taking the time to discuss this fascinating work with me. So just in summary, we've been talking about the, the new book from Antonio Tony Zadra and Bob Stigold, which is called When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mysteries of Sleep. Bob, thanks very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Have a great day.